Uh, this is going to be the same topic as the last episode, unfortunately, because I stumbled across a clip that I told myself I was going to respond to for sure. Why I forgot about it when I made my last episode is, is a mystery to me. Um, but after going through, I was going to be making some responses to some of the things that Leighton had responded to me way, way back uh, when he made two episodes responding to uh, one of my episodes. Found this uh, this this clip again where he's reading an article where he thinks he's sort of refuting the idea or the claim of Calvinists that we're always choosing according to our greatest desire. Uh, so that's what we're going to be going over today. I would highly recommend if you have not heard the past episode, which is influences and determinism versus free will, that you stop this episode and go listen to that one. It's going to be very helpful, although I suppose not entirely necessary. Um, another thing I wanted to mention before we get into it is something that happened recently. There was a debate over the idea of dynamic omniscience, which as far as I can tell is a fancy name for open theism, but it was between Warren McGrew and Tyler Vela. Uh, Tyler does the Freedthinker podcast. So if you guys uh, search YouTube for Does God Possess Dynamic Omniscience, uh, that's the debate, and I highly encourage it. was a really good debate. Tyler did a great job. Highly encourage you guys to go check that out. And it also... Uh, slaps me in the face in terms of the the doctrine of divine simplicity something i've been meaning to really get around to and haven't yet uh, it's a very weighty weighty topic in terms of studying it and understanding it it's a but it's also a very big deal right it's a very it's the historical view of god um, which is that god does not change and he certainly um, knows all things and 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 doesn't learn as as time unfolds I uh, would to check out that debate. Once again, does God possess dynamic omniscience between Moore McGrew and Tyler Vela? I hope I'm pronouncing Tyler's last name correctly. Um, but anyways, uh, we're going to get into this. I have an eight-minute clip of Leighton uh, where he's going to be basically making a couple comments and then quoting um, an article that is seeking to refute the idea that we are always choosing according to our greatest desire. So... With that said, let's jump right in. Uh, the, the, the greatest desire, the circular reasoning of the Calvinists. So the, the, the Calvinists will often say, well, let me just read it. Calvinists regularly argue that mankind is responsible because they make choices according to their own desires. In fact, the Calvinist teaches that individuals will always choose in accordance with his or her greatest desire. But what does that mean exactly? Let's unpack it. Right. We unpacked that in the last episode. Uh, what does it mean exactly? All it means is that there is a determinative explanation. There's a coherence to reality. There is a reason why you chose what you chose. Right, So we are simply pointing out that if a choice is free and it's not forced, then you're doing what you most want to do in each circumstance. Right, If it were anything less than what you most want to do, then there would have to be some sort of coercion involved um, to whatever degree uh, when you stop to think about it. Okay, And if you're going to attempt to argue against this, then the burden is actually on you to explain how a choice could be made that is according to less than your greatest desire, and that could in any sense be described as, as a free choice, right? I mean, if, if doing what you most want can be obviously considered free, then what would be doing what you least want in a situation? Is that like sort of free or just a little, little free? I mean, this is something that people like Leighton never really explain. They just say, well, it's all free, um, but they're really not giving much they want to pretend once again to acknowledge the fact that desires are competing and there's greater desires and lesser desires but if the greatest desire is not the determiner of your choice that is as free of a choice as you can have you could be making as free of an action as you can be taking is to be acting according to the greatest desire in a particular situation and one of the important things we pointed out in the last episode is you can't think about this topic lazily you can't just start saying well I didn't want to do it, but I still did it, so obviously I was doing what I least wanted. No, as we pointed out in the last episode, there's determinative reasons. That even when you do something that you claim to not want to be doing, there's still reasons that you want to do it, if it is a free choice, right? So I didn't want to go to work today. I wanted to stay home, but I still went to work. Why? Because I wanted to pay my bills, because I wanted to not lose my job, because I wanted to, well, if I had a family, provide for it, so on and so forth, right? So there are wants and desires um, coming from both sides, right? It's just that sometimes we say we don't want to be doing something, which can be true. Again, there's there's reasons for not wanting to do it, right? I, I might want to stay home and play video games, but if my want to pay my bills is greater, then I'm going to go to work. I'm going to act on that greater want, right? And this is why if I if I say that I don't want to go to work, but I still go, I'm not lying, right? Because the desire to not go to work 
and play video games is there. It's it's a desire that exists, right? But the whole point is that it's overruled, so to speak, by my desire to want to pay my bills in that situation, right? So when people are doing things that they claim to not want to be doing, we don't call them liars because we understand, obviously, that there are more than one desire involved, but we also know that they're acting on their greatest desire. I would be lying if I were to tell you that the desire that I acted upon was not my greatest desire. I would be lying if I said that my greatest desire in that situation was to stay home and play video games. But I acted on a lesser than great desire, somehow, to go to work, right? Because once again, when it comes to free choice, uncoerced choice, that doesn't make any sense. The freest, quote-unquote, freest choice you can be making, the freest action you can be taking, is on the greatest desire. And so this begins to become very ironic for the free will side, because if freedom in this context, in this context, if freedom is doing what you want, then doing what you most want would be you being most free, right? So ironically, in a deterministic worldview where you're always acting according to your greatest desire, in a deterministic worldview, you are always acting most freely. And for the free will side, if you want to say that you're so free that you can actually choose, again, there's that extra choice, you're so free in free will that you can actually choose to act according to less than greatest desire, which would by definition be a less free choice than acting on your greatest desire, then you're somehow, and this is the problem once again, when you try to insert extra layers of choice, you're somehow going to say that you chose to make a less than totally free choice, which is a joke, right? But these are the knots that the free will side will, will tie themselves in when they try to get down to this level, right? This level is where free will disintegrates, and they just have to make constant appeals to mystery, constant circular logical fallacies, and, and so on and so forth, right? I, I, I would ask the free will side, why would choosing according to your greatest desire be a bad thing? If that, by definition, is a truly free choice, right? why would always acting according to your greatest desire be bad? That's as free as you can be. Anything less than your greatest desire would be less, less free. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like now we're talking about degrees of freedom. So you think that being able to act less freely is what is actually giving you more freedom. And that's comical, because it just, once again, demonstrates how you're just going to insert extra layers of choice. You're choosing to want to choose to want, and it just makes a mess out of reality. And this is what's funny, is the free will side is going to accuse me of, of making assumptions. They're going to accuse me of assuming that people act on their greatest desire without, without proving it. But I don't know how else to prove it than to point out that it is the only way to make any any sense out of reality. It is the only way to give a justification or an explanation as to why people are taking particular actions in, in particular situations. You see, it's actually the free will side that is making assumptions. The free will side is assuming, first of all, that free will is a thing, and they're assuming that they can somehow choose to act according to a less than greatest desire. And I pointed out in the last episode, there's all the difference in the world between saying that you, your choice is the result of your greatest desire, you act according to your greatest desire, that puts choice and desire in the proper relationship, right? You choose to do something because you want to do it, not the other way around. You don't choose to want to do something. You, you choose something because you want to choose it. And so you can call that making assumptions if you want, but what I'm doing is simply recognizing that reality has a coherence to it, right? There are reasons behind why people do things. The free will side is the one that is making assumptions and is basically saying, well, this mystical, magical free will is choosing amongst all these desires, and sometimes it chooses the greatest one, and other times it chooses the less, least greatest one, and we don't really know why, right? You can't ever give a reason why, because that would, once again, affirm determinism, refute free will. And so I would flip this accusation of making just making assumptions back on the other side, right? And I would say that, how do you know that someone is not acting according to greatest desire? How would you know, how would you be able to prove that my claim that people are acting according to the greatest desire is false? And the, you can't you can't disprove it if you stop to think about it. Because all you're going on, if I were to ask you how do you know that somebody acted according to a lesser than greatest desire, the only thing you could go by is their claim. Just their, their word. They say so. Right? So once again, I would claim that my greatest desire was to stay home and play video games, but I somehow acted on a lesser desire to go to work and pay my bills. It's just my saying so. But when you try to apply that to a coherent reality, once again, it doesn't make any sense. Because again, acting according to grace desire is as free as you can be in terms of doing what you want. So if that's free, then what would you acting according to a lesser than greatest desire be? 
This is the, these are the sorts of explanations the free will side needs to give. And once again, as far as making assumptions, um, I am assuming nothing more than, the, than that your will and your thoughts and your emotions, everything that goes into you making choices is just as much a part of reality as anything else that God has created and anything else that God sustains. That's my assumption. You want to call that assumption? Okay, fine. I'm guilty as charged. My assumption is that you and everything that makes you you, right, is part of reality, just like everything else. That doesn't make you like everything else in, the, in, 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 in every respect, right? Inanimate objects don't have wills and emotions and thoughts and these sorts of things. But you don't transcend reality any more than an inanimate, inanimate object does. That's my point, right? God is the creator of both the inanimate objects and the animate ones. He is just as much a, a creator and a sustainer of you and your thoughts and your, your emotions and your will as he is a creator of anything else in this universe. That's my assumption. My assumption is that you do not transcend reality. You do not transcend your own existence. You do not have this magical thing called free will that allows you to do what people like Leighton Flowers say and somehow choose what you want to choose. That's all that's being said. Now, flip that around on the other side and their assumption of free will. Their assumption is that there's a part of you that is actually transcendent to everything else in reality. There is a part of you that does not act according to the idea of cause and effect, right? You look around you, everything else, everything else is acting one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. ABC, one, two, three, reality is connected. There's a coherence to it and everything else except you and your free will somehow. So who's really making the greater leap in assumption here? Am I, is it me in assuming that you are just as much a created thing as anything else? That God is just as much a sustainer of you as he is a sustainer of everything else that he's created? Am I the one making the crazy assumptions? Or is it the side that is saying that somehow you transcend everything else? Something that needs to be needs to be answered. Ronnie Rogers expounds on the Calvinist argument with the appropriate citations. Calvinists believe that man is free to choose according to his greatest desire. For example, Jonathan Edwards believed that he what he called the strength of motive, quote and end quote, strength of motive. He said concerning such, I suppose the will is always determined by the strongest motive. Therefore, Edwards argued that one freely chooses to act in accordance with his strongest motive regarding the nature of free choice. He also said that it is the ability to do what we will or according to our pleasure. So that's what a compatibilist believes. Right. The, the freest possible choice you can have is acting according to your greatest desire. That you're free as long as you're doing what you want, okay? You're, you're acting in accordance with your pleasure. You will always act according to whatever that strongest desire is. Okay. And remember, when we're throwing around the word free or freedom, we have to clearly assign a reference point, right? In, in this discussion, we're talking about freedom in the sense of doing what you want and not being forced, right? So even I, as a Calvinist, even though I might not use the phrase free will, I can use the phrase acting freely, right? Because I've already very clearly laid out what I mean by that. You're acting as freely as you can act when you're acting when you're acting according to your greatest desire in a particular situation, right? And both sides would agree of, of freedom in, in the sense that you're doing what you want and not being forced. Everybody, everybody, right, Calvinist or not, can call that freedom. But what we don't agree on is that I, as a determinist, would be saying that your will is not free from what you want. The free will side wants to take your will and completely separate it from those things and say that your will is free from what you want. Okay, that's what they're saying. And, and we demonstrated several times in the last episode why people like Leighton, they insert that extra layer of choice before the wanting so that somehow you're choosing what to want. You're not merely acting according to your greatest want in a particular situation, but your wants are just there, sort of on the table, and then you're choosing which want to act according to. But this is once again that circular, infinite regress, illogical uh, problem that I've pointed out. Because... When Leighton uses a phrase like choose which desire to act on or choose which desire to fulfill, what is acting and what is fulfilling? Those are choices, right? You're, those are choices in and of themselves. Actions, choices, we're talking about choices here. So if you're going to say you chose which desire to act on, you're saying you chose which desire to choose according to, right? And so you have said, you're basically saying you chose what you chose, right, at the end of the day. And so asking whether your will is free to act according to what you want, most want, is not the same thing as asking if your will is free from what you want or most want. If you're going to deny that you always act according to your greatest desire, then you are saying that your will is free from your greatest desire. It's free from it, right? 
You're separating your will from your wants and desires. Instead of having a coherent reality where your choices are the results of your desires, which is what we all know to be true, when you stop and think about it, if you're acting freely, you're doing what you most want, your desires are determining your choices in particular situations. But free will has to separate those things. And so what you do in the process, when you, when you, move your, when you separate your will from your wants and try to move it before your wants so that you're somehow choosing which want to choose according to, then you're making this entire idea of greater or lesser desires completely irrelevant. If you're on the free will side, you should never, you shouldn't even be speaking them of them as greater or lesser. There's, you have, you know, people like Leighton, they have to recognize, oh, we, there's competing desires. Well, the competition is completely irrelevant if your free will is choosing the winner, right? Instead of there being a competition of desires and a ranking of desires, and there being determinative reasons behind why one desire is greater than another in a particular situation, you're trying to come along and say that all those determinative factors that would rank those desires are irrelevant and your free will can just choose the winner, right? So it's completely meaningless that one desire is greater than the other. So you should stop talking about competing desires and just start talking about them as these general desires that you just choose to act on. And I can't help but repeat my infinite regress accusation because remember, any choice that you make is going to have a want attached to it, right? You do something because you want to. You choose something because you want to. And so if you're going to try to insert an extra layer of choice in there, then you're also, by default, of necessity, inserting an extra layer of wanting. So why did you choose it? Because you wanted to. And then why did you want to? Because you chose to want to. But when you insert that choice, there's a want to. So you wanted to choose to wanted to choose. And it just goes on forever. And you can talk about competing desires all day long, but again, they're made completely irrelevant. You see, my side doesn't have that problem. We can start at the choice and trace it backwards, right? One step at a time, and we keep going backwards. We don't circle back. We don't have to, we don't have to create some sort of logical problem. And that's what we laid out in the last episode. We laid out how from start to finish or from finish to start, however you want to trace it, there is a determinative connection to what is going on. There is an explanation for each and every step along the way. And that is, by definition, what we would expect from a coherent reality. Consequently, according to Edwards, man's freedom to choose is determined by his nature and his desires. In other words, man is free to choose to do his greatest desire. Of course, this is the Calvinist view of free will as defined by compatibilism. It is important to note two very important components of this view. First, the desire or nature from which the desire emanates is not chosen, i.e. a person's past. Second, right, so that first point is very important, right? You don't, and all that's basically saying is you don't choose your choices. That's all that's being said, right? So why'd you choose it? Because you wanted to, why'd you want to? And then you examine the situation like we did last episode, and you've got all these determinative reasons, you in combination with the circumstances, your past experience, your current mood, current state of mind, how smart you are, um, your disposition towards the person you're interacting with, all of these things are unique to a, a situation, and they're going to result in a greatest desire, which then results in a choice, right? There's a total coherency to it. And when we talk about this topic, again, there's Lots of hypotheticals, everybody's different, but you can understand what I'm getting at, that there is a coherence to it, okay? And when they throw an objection out there like this where, well, those things aren't chosen, well, no kidding. That's my whole point, is you don't transcend your own existence. You don't transcend your past. You don't transcend your current state of mind. You don't transcend the dispositions you have towards people and why those dispositions are there. You don't transcend any of this. You just make choices as time unfolds. You make a choice in a situation, right? And there's reasons behind it. It's the free will side that completely obliterates reality when they try to make your choice transcend it. When they try to put this idea that you're choosing what to choose, right? You don't choose what to choose, you just choose. And, and you know, covered that in last episode. The unchosen desire is in fact determinative of what the free choice will be. That is to say the Calvinist belief. Right, you don't choose your desire to choose. I know Leighton says that repeatedly, but saying it repeatedly doesn't make it true. Believes man is free to choose according to his greatest desire, but not contrarily. Therefore, his free choice is actually determined by his desire. For example, according to Edwards, sinful man will always freely choose to do the, his greatest desire, which is to sin. The greatest desire apart from his nature, which is a part of his nature. Absolutely correct. Fallen man will never choose to follow Christ without first having his nature changed. Keep that in mind because that gets to the ontological point that's made later. Okay. He has to have his nature changed to emanate new desires. This is the basis for the Calvinist positions that regenerate, that regeneration precedes faith, end quote from Ronnie Rogers. So, and I did a couple episodes on that topic. It started with, did you believe because you're better? Leighton made a response, and then I made another response called, uh, called uh, moral ability and ontology. 
uh, Response to Latent Flyers. Check those episodes out. Uh, very important on this topic. Pritchett goes on to write, in a recent online discussion, Dr. Pritchett, well, actually, I guess I'm writing this about Jonathan Pritchett. It's been a while. I forgot what this article said. Okay, But in an online uh, discussion, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett made a strong case against Calvinism's position on this point. So he's getting into the what he considers to be a strong argument against Calvinism's claim that a free choice is choosing according to your greatest desire. Here's the theological argument. In order for person X to freely choose Y, God has to ensure that person X has the desire to only choose to do Y, so Y obtains. Because, like all things, God decreed Y. So, there, it's, it's half true. Okay, And I'm going to play this again because I want you to notice the wording. God has to ensure that person X has a desire. Okay? These, this type of language is what I hinted at in, in my very earliest episodes, where people are assuming that God can either be controlling things or not be controlling things. And so the implication here in this type of language is that God needs to choose to control things so that he can get the desired result. And as I pointed out in past episodes, God controlling you is not a choice that he is making, right? It is the necessary consequence of your very existence. God is not just your creator, but he's your sustainer, and he's your sustainer at all moments. So he has caused you to come into existence when he created you, and he causes you to continue to exist as he sustains you. And is anybody going to dare say that God is not in control of his own sustaining power? He was in control of how he created things. He was in control of precisely the way in which his creative power brought things into existence. Why would it not logically follow, then, that God is in absolute control of his sustaining power and the way he keeps things in existence? And if that truth is applicable to every particle of your existence, that would include your will, it would include your thoughts, it would include your choices, it would include your emotions, all of you, okay? So I say this to point out once again a false assumption on the free will side. The false assumption is that God can be somehow creating things that he does not control. And I want to attack that and cut it off right at the base and say, what if that's not even logically possible for God to do? What if... God's control of you is a necessary consequence of your very existence. What if you exist, therefore God controls you? Then you'll see when I play this again that this language of God must ensure that person has a particular desire is false. Right? God is not micromanaging things because he needs to do it, otherwise other things would be happening. God is micromanaging things because they exist. God, the only reason they exist is because God is micromanaging them. <laughs> the only reason they continue to exist is because God is micromanaging them. All right, so listen to this again. Calvinism's position on this point. Here's the theological argument. In order for person X to freely choose Y, God has to ensure that person X has the desire to only choose to do Y, so Y obtains. Say to only choose as if something else could be happening if God wasn't ensuring it. So I might... I'm sort of picking at nits on that, but it's 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 a very subtle false assumption, and it's worldview differences, right? You can make entire episodes on what I just, just put forth there, but I just want you guys to understand, if all he wants to say is, well, God is determined that people will choose particular things, because he's also determined that they'll desire to choose those things, yep, no argument, um, no argument. Because, like all things, God decreed why. So this is the means to the ends, right? If God is determined that someone will make a particular choice, he's also dis determined the coherent reality behind why that person makes that choice. Why was that their greatest desire? And what this shows is that God is in control of all of it, right? If God is determined that somebody make a particular choice, he's determined everything that leads up to that choice, right? The person's past, their current state of mind, what mood they're in, the dispositions towards the people involved, each specific circumstance along the way God was in control of it all, and he had purposes for it all. If God ensures Y and Y is sin, then God caused X to sin because there is there are any number of other things that could obtain if X had different desires. See, and then there, you wonder why I stressed what I stressed. He's talking about these other things that could be happening. No. Again, if we're talking about Calvinism, if you, if you want to start with our view, there are no other things that could be happening. The only other things that could be happening are other things that God would have brought about. Okay? And this is because, again, we don't transcend reality. Even other sinful ones. But God's decree decreed X to do Y, not anything else. And then it's like, if, if God's decree wasn't there, man, other stuff would, you know, other stuff would be happening. No, it's God's 
I don't really like the word decree, but it's it's God's plan and purpose and action of of causing continued existence that gives reality its very existence. Things are happening precisely the way they're happening because God is at work. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 says. That's why things are the way they are. And if God wasn't working things after the counsel of his will, nothing would be happening. The only way X obtains is if God works all things to ensure it and, and nothing else as such. God caused X to commit sin Y. This is just bad theology. And I don't know why anything that was said there is, is quote-unquote bad theology. Uh, the, the only thing I can come away with is, is, well, if God causes sin, then that's just terrible and he'd be a sinner. And why doesn't that make God a sinner? We can talk about responsibility. I don't have time for that here. I've gone over that in past episodes. But here we're getting to the, the good part. So this, what, what Leighton is going to quote here, and he's quoting it, which means he agrees with it. He considers this a valid argument, is the person who's writing this article is going to attempt to show, in, in the greatest of ironies, I've already shown not just not just accuse the other side of being a circular, infinite regress, illogical joke. I've actually demonstrated how that is the case, given their claims. That free will has an infinite regress, illogical joke, right? You choosing to want, to choose to want, to choose to want. They're actually going to try to say here that the Calvinists have a circular, illogical joke when we say that people are choosing to act according to their greatest desires. Believe it or not. And that's why I have to play this and respond to it. Now, the philosophical argument. If compatibilism is true, then free will is the will of man choosing in accordance to the strongest desire. So if then, so then it is circular and therefore irrational, must be abandoned. Here's the circle. <laughs> now listen to this. People cho choose according to their strongest desire. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. And they chose it because people choose according to their strongest desire. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. And they chose it because people choose according to their strongest desire. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. And so on and so on. So it's actually the Calvinist making a circular argument. We're now, I'm going to explain this, but spoiler alert, there was no circle there. There was just two true, two true statements repeated over and over. Okay? So if you didn't pick up on this uh, the first time through... Uh, let me give an example to demonstrate what's going on here. What's actually going on is they're making a, they're they're answering a why question, right? Why do people make a choice? Because it was the greatest desire. The why question, and then the second statement is a how do you know question, right? How do you know it was their greatest desire? Now, if right, if you're if you're going to start with our claim that people are choosing according to their greatest desire, and this is by the way. When you're going to attempt to create the illogical circles and the, the infinite regresses, you, you start with the person's claim and assume it to be true, and then you demonstrate how it's circular. So they're starting, right? Let's save, let's save whether or not we choose according to our greatest desire for, for later. I've already sort of addressed it, but let's just, let's just start and assume it's true. They're saying, therefore, it's circular because... It's the circle. People cho choose according to their strongest desire, and we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. That's not a circle. If people choose according to the greatest desire, then when a choice is made, you can know what their greatest desire was. Because you're asking, number one, why they chose it, and then secondly, you're asking how you know it was their greatest desire. But notice something. That's like saying, if I have a light, and the light can only come on if a switch is flipped, then the light came on because a switch was flipped. But you can also ask, how do you know a switch was flipped? Because the light came on. Right, and there's there's nothing circular about that. There's just two true statements from different angles. Right? Why did the light come on? Because a switch was flipped. How do you know a switch was flipped? Because the light came on. Okay, no logical circle there. Just two factual statements. And so listen to this again. People cho choose according to their strongest desire. And if that's true, then and we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. Precisely. It's not circular at all. Now, I think I can help out here, and, and, and maybe what he was trying to get at is the only way this would be circular is if you were making, if you were answering the why question forwards and then backwards. So if you were to say, people choose according to their greatest desire, and the greatest desire was the greatest desire because they chose it, that would be circular. But that's not, what's, that's not what this article said. Maybe that's what they were trying to get at, but that's not what this article said. All this article says is choose according to their strongest desire. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. Making a statement of why and then a statement of how you know. And I've already demonstrated if a light comes on, it's because a switch was flipped. 
And how do you know a, flips, a switch was flipped? Because a light came on. Because there is a determinative relationship between those two things. Okay? Now, I do need to point out that we need to be careful to not commit an actual logical fallacy, which is known as affirming the consequent, which is if A, then B, B, therefore A. So if there is more than one possible way for B to occur, then A is not always logically the way it is occurring. So in the light example, I was very careful to point out that the only way this particular light is coming on is if a switch was flipped. And if that's true, then the the point I'm making is valid. Now, if, if the light could come on because somebody turned it on with something other than a switch, like their smartphone or something like that, well, then you could accuse me of committing some sort of logical fallacy. But just for the sake of this argument, I want to make it clear that um, as long as there is one direct connection between A and B, and the only way B is occurring is the result of A, then this, this statement holds true. Just a quick example to demonstrate this so you guys are all on the same page. Um, the example given on Wikipedia, ironically, is, is related to the idea of lights and switches. It basically says, well, if a lamp is broken, the room will be dark, right? Therefore, if the room's dark, the lamp must be broken. Well, that's actually uh, a logical fallacy of affirming the consequent because there are all sorts of other reasons besides the lamp being broken that the room might be dark. Maybe the lamp's not plugged in. Maybe it's plugged in, but it's not switched on, so on and so forth, right? So you have to be careful when you're doing this A, B, B, therefore A logic. Um, but what I want to point out very clearly is that when there are not more than one possible condition for a particular result, right, such as my example of this light only coming on if the switch is flipped, then everything I've been saying um, in comparison to the er the error of the argument being put forth in this article stands true, right? If the light is on, then, it, then the switch was flipped. That was the only way the light could come on. And therefore, if the light's on, you can know that a switch was flipped. And to state those two things is not at all committing a circular fallacy. So let's come back to this idea that the only way this would be circular is if you were saying people choose according to the greatest desire and the reason it was their greatest desire is because they chose it. But this has never been what, the, what determinists like myself are claiming. Remember, we trace it backwards and we keep going backwards and we keep giving answers and we keep giving reality coherency. So people choose according to the greatest desire. Why was it their greatest desire? Not because they chose it. That's actually, ironically, what makes me laugh about all this, that's ironically the free will position's view. You chose to want it, right? But what the determinist says is, why was it their greatest desire? Not because they chose it. They chose it because it was their greatest desire, but why was it their greatest desire? The answer to that is everything we laid out in the last episode, okay? It was their greatest desire because in that circumstance, all of these determinative factors came together and resulted in it being their greatest desire. But notice, I'm tracing it backwards, and backwards, and backwards, and backwards, and backwards. I am never once circling back, right? And you could apply this to the light example. It would be circular to say, the light came on because a switch was flipped. And a switch was flipped because a light came on. That's a circular, that's illogical, right? The light, the, the, the switch is not flipped because a light comes on. You know a switch was flipped because a light came on. But that's not the same thing as saying a, flip, a switch was flipped because a light came on. If you're going to ask why the switch was flipped, you're going to keep going backwards, right? You're going to trace the causes backwards. The switch was flipped because somebody flipped it. And then why did they flip it? Because they wanted to flip it. And then why did they want to flip it? And ironically, we've traced it back to the very topic at hand, right? So the person who wrote this article, no offense to them, um, didn't think this through. Because all they're doing is making two truthful statements. So after laying that out, let's hear this one last time. And hopefully... Uh, you guys can see it. People cho choose according to their strongest desire. And if that's true. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. Precisely. If people choose according to their greatest desire, then when a choice is made, you can know what their greatest desire was. Very simple. And they chose it because people choose according to their strongest desire. Yep. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. Yep. And they chose it because people choose according to their strongest desire. Uh -huh. And we know it was their strongest desire because they chose it. And so on and so on. And all you're doing is repeating two truths. You're not creating a circle at all. That would be just like me saying a light came on because a switch was flipped. And we know a switch was flipped because a light came on. Yeah, no kidding. And a light came on because a switch was flipped. And we know a switch was flipped because a light came on. And a light came on because a switch was flipped. And we know a switch was flipped because a light came on. There's nothing circular about that. There's just you repeating two truths over and over, pretending like it's a circle. So on. So it's actually the Calvinist making a circular argument. And that was, that's why I wanted to, to respond to this because that, anyways. 
He goes on here to, I'm going to finish this, uh, this out. There's quite a bit left, but I'll keep my comments sort of minimal. Uh, I just want to finish out the follow-ups of that. I, I think the, the article goes on and some more points are made here. We're making an argument of free causation, of self-determination, uh, of agent determination, just like the God, God is a determinative agent as his determination to uh, create you. Now, notice something. What did, what did I say at the beginning of this episode? You can accuse me of making an assumption, and yet my assumption is grounded in reality. I assume that you are created and that you're sustained and that you don't transcend creation, right? You operate in the same reality as everything else. And what does Leighton constantly do when he talks about free will and he's cornered into this, why did you Why did you choose it? Why did you choose it? Give me an explanation. What does he do? He jumps straight up to God. He jumps straight out of reality, out of creation, into the transcendent position of God and tries to say, well, look, look at God. He's self-determined. He has a free will, right? He's self-caused. So then why can't I be? And this is one of the most mind-blowingly massive logical fallacies I've ever come across in this debate. And that is that you look at God and you, you admit that the reason God is self-caused is because he's eternal. And he's not determined by things outside of himself. And he doesn't exist in space and time. And he is not sustained by something else. He's self-sustained. You, you list off all these things that make God God and say that's why God has free will. And then somehow have the logical audacity to say, therefore, I can have that thing too. Even though you have none of those things that God has, which are the reasons behind why God is, has, is a truly free will uh, being, you have none of those things, and yet you want to claim free will for yourself. So too, he created us with the ability to make choices. And we are the... And, and again, the ability to make choices. Determinists believe that we are making choices. Right? They're just not self-determined, self-caused choices that are created out of nothing. We're therefore the determiner of our choices. Desires are influential, not determinative. On Cal and we covered that in the last episode. Calvinism desires are determinative, almost like animal instinct. It desires are determinative in particular situations, and that gives coherency to reality. It allows you to provide an explanation and a justification for why things occur. And when he says... Determinative, almost like animal instinct. It's... Not animal instinct, as I pointed out last episode, because we have this thing called thought process and deliberation and emotion and intellect. We have a whole lot of things that animals don't have. But what have I already said? None of those things transcend reality, right? There's all sorts of differences. You can list off 101 million differences between you and animals. But you know what you can't put on that list? Transcendence. Something you all have in common with, with animals or rocks or anything else is that God created you, and that God sustains you, and that God has absolute power over you. And as I've already said, control over you. Logically, this is a logically necessary aspect of your very existence. It determines the action of the agent. It doesn't just influence the action of the agent. And that's the difference. Again, effects... Right. So, at the end of all this causes and effects in particular situations, this results in you having a greatest desire, and you act according to it, and you're acting freely. Effectuality is read onto words like desire. It's not just a desire, it's an effectual desire. So what's the greatest desire? It's an effectual desire that God ordained for you to have that you could not have desired otherwise. Now notice, I keep saying desire, desire, desire. I think you're going to go on here, Mr. Calvinist, critique me as if I don't know that, which is so aggravating to me. Love you, brother, but you're about to hit on my pet peeve in just a minute from what I remember. Okay. Pritchett goes on to write. And again, you'll have to see my episode, Moral Ability and Ontology, Response to Leighton Flowers, for my response to um, that particular comment. Pritchett goes on to write, Dr. Pritchett writes, It is a baseless, unprovable assertion. At most, we could say that the prevailing desire prevails. But this is a trivial claim and mere truism that says nothing about the strength or lack thereof regarding the desire acted upon. It only states that the desire acted upon was the desire acted upon. But that doesn't tell us anything. In fact, in experience, people always find themselves choosing according to it less than their strongest desires. And this, this is critical, okay? Because this is what I brought out in the last episode. Let me play this again. But that doesn't tell us anything. In fact, in experience, people always find themselves choosing according to it less than their strongest desires. In experience, people always find themselves choosing according to less than their greatest desire. And as I pointed out before, this is an illusion that you are under, right? Because you don't, you, you think very lazily right? Decision-making is so much, it's just something we do, and we don't give much thought to it. So you look at something that you don't want to be doing, and you say, well, I'd rather be playing video games right now. And then you categorize that lazily as your greatest desire, right? But once again, if whatever it is you are doing that you claim to not want to be doing 
is a free act and you're not being forced to do it, then there's a want attached to that as well. Even though you're not wanting to do it, your reasons for not wanting to do it are different than your reasons for wanting to do it. I don't want to go to work because it's not fun. I don't want to go to work because it's hard. I don't want to go to work because I'm tired today. Lots of, lots of not wantings involved there, right? But I end up going to work. Why? Because I want to pay my bills. Because I don't want to lose my job. And those desires are greater. That's why I acted upon them. Okay? So don't, don't let... And, and again, I challenge the free will side to give me a single hypothetical example or real example. You use your greatest imagination to give me an example of an instance where you chose to act according to less than your greatest desire, right? And I can pick it apart and show that, no, there was a desire involved there, and it was your greatest desire, and there was reasons for it. I can do it with any free choice, quote-unquote, that you're going to give me, right? And this is why this is all assertion, and you're, ne- you're not once going to hear anything in here that refutes the idea that you're choosing according to greatest desire. It's all just claims. Here's the biblical argument. If the theological argument above is correct, then God causes why? But the Bible teaches, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Doesn't, doesn't say by his sovereignty decree desires, or by the nature he was born with that he has no control over. Okay. Right. So we are enticed by our own desires. Just because God is in control of all things, including those desires, doesn't mean they're not ours. Uh, this always blows my mind how the free will side wants to say, if God determined my choices, then they're not mine. What are you talking about? That's like saying, if God created me, then I'm not me. What are you talking about, right? God created you. He made you you. He made everything about you you when he created you. And yet that's that doesn't make you not you. That's in fact the very definition of why you are you. God made you who you are. So God having determinative control over aspects of you doesn't make those aspects not you. It by definition actually makes them you, right? So your choices are your choices precisely because God made them your choices. He determined them to be your choices. He created you and planned and purposed all things, including your choices. God is the creator, right? I know the free will side wants to think that you are a a creator of your own choices, and unless you're creating your own choices out of nothing, that they're not really your choices, right? But the fact of the matter is that God is the only one who is truly a creator out of nothing. God is the one who gives meaning to all things, including you, including your choices. He was lured and enticed by his own desires. When des- the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So he's quoting from James where it says God does not tempt anybody. Um, once again, God determining that somebody be tempted is not the same thing as saying that God tempts the person. God would only be tempting the person if he entered in on the storyline level and actually did the tempting, right? But he doesn't do this. But as I've already said, God created all things and he sustains all things, which means that any time a temptation has ever occurred, whether it was Adam and Eve or you yesterday, God's power was at work in upholding the very existence of everything involved in that temptation. God upheld the, the person or the thing tempting you, and he upheld you and your desire to, be, to either be or not be tempted. He upheld it all. His power was involved in it all. He was working it all, right? Because you have to understand God in the transcendent position. God in the transcendent position is the only way to make sense out of any of this. And to say that if God determines that somebody be tempted is identical to saying that God tempted somebody, then I could just as easily flip that back on you and say that any time that God allowed a person to be tempted, knowing that they would be, knowing for, with certainty that they would be, then God tempted them, right? God allowed them to be tempted, knowing that they would be, and therefore, that's the same thing as saying God tempted them. But it's not, is it? Because if I ask that question of you, you are very quickly going to point out that God is in the transcendent position and that that is not an accurate description of what is going on. There's a storyline level, right? Person A tempts person B. And yet God's control, whether it's direct and causative, like it is in my position, or indirect and permissive, as it is in your position, is certainly not to be ignored, but it is not to be conflated with what is going on on the storyline level. So God being in control of things does not make God those things, okay? James 1, 13 through 15. That desire can't come from God, ensuring it is present for Agent X to choose Y, because the Bible teaches that the desire for Y comes from man, not God. And this is, this is so lazy. What do you mean from God? Right? Determinists aren't saying that God did the tempting. So what do you mean when you say that if determinism is true, the desire will be coming, quote-unquote, from God? What do you mean by that? 
again, I could flip that right back on you. If, if God had not allowed the temptation to occur, it wouldn't have even been occurring. So does that mean it was coming from God? Well, in the transcendent sense, in terms of God's control over things, the Bible says in multiple instances that various bad things are from God. Paul says in Romans 11, he concludes the chapter basically, after talking about the sinful disobedience of Israel, saying that all things are from God. So, Leighton's done this in the past. He's quoted Piper and said, who says that all things are from God. All we mean by that is that God creates all things. He sustains all things. He's working all things. He has a plan in all things, right? But he's in the transcendent position. That does not mean that all things are from God on the storyline level, right? When you come down to the storyline level, what's from God? Well, all the good things. God is working the good things in the believers by the Holy Spirit. So they're from God, both transcendently and on the storyline level in that sense. But evil is certainly not from God on the storyline level. God is not the one sinning. He is not the one, he's not forcing people to sin. He is not the one doing the tempting on the storyline level. So of course, sin is from the world, as he's, as Leighton's about to go on here, right? This is, this is all very simple when you understand God in the transcendent position. And this is not just a Calvinist thing. The only way to make sense out of vast majorities of the Bible is to understand God in the transcendent position. Pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. See what I mean? Pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. That is making a storyline level statement, and it's talking about people are prideful, right? People are lustful. And the various things that cause them on the storyline level that cause them to be prideful and lustful are on the storyline level. Just because God's in control of all the storyline level things as sustainer, does not mean that those things are coming from him on the storyline level. First John 2.16, okay? The Calvinists could... And, and again, flip it back on you. It's coming from the world, right? Right, Leighton? Is it the world that God created? Oh, it, it, it is? So, so pride and lust are coming from the world that God created. So it's coming from the world that came from God. So does that mean it's from God? Or can things be said to be coming from God in an ultimate sense and from God on a storyline level sense. And which context, which sense, are the verses you're quoting talking about? Right? Again, Paul says in Romans 11.36 that from God, and to God, and through God, but from God are all things. From God, and through God, and to God are all things, including the very sinful disobedience of Israel mentioned in that verse. So, does sinful disobedience come from God? Is it contradicting your quotation here, in John. No, it's not. Because Paul is talking about God having plans and purposes in all the things that he is working transcendently over against the verse that you're quoting, which is talking about sin coming from the world on the storyline level. People being the ones sinning, prideful, lustful people, hardening hearts, so on and so forth. Reverse could actually say the exact opposite of that verse, and it would be true of their system. They, they could actually say pride and lust comes from the decree of the Father, Ultimately, they could say that. That's a different statement. That's a different statement, Leighton. So no, we can't just say the opposite of the verse because the verse is addressing the storyline level, right? Sin exists in the world. Sin occurs in creation. That's where it comes, quote unquote, from, right? But that's different than saying that ultimately all things are happening according to the plan and purpose of God. That's different. Even you believe that God knew all this stuff would happen before he created. Even you believe that God willingly chooses to uphold all these evil things and these prideful things and these lustful things while they occur. God's power is at work, even in your view, when these things are occurring. So if God is the sustainer of somebody who's being prideful, why isn't the pride coming from God? And your answer is going to be my answer. Where the Bible says, pride and lust do not come from the Father. The Calvinists could literally say, pride and lust come from the decree of the Father, come from the sovereign will of the Father. They could say that. In other words, they can say the exact opposite of what the Bible says, and it would not affect their theology whatsoever. That should tell you something. Okay? But it's not the exact opposite, is it? Was Paul saying the exact opposite when he said that the sinful disobedience of Israel came from God? No. He was obviously just addressing the fact that God had a plan and purpose in everything that was occurring. It's in that sense that it came from God, right? When Joseph, when Joseph told his brothers that God meant what they did, he meant it. He meant their sinful actions for good. Does that mean their sinful actions came, quote-unquote, from God? Right? Well, it depends on what you mean. Obviously, they came from God in terms of his plan. Right? Obviously, it came from God if you're going to talk about him as being the creator and the sustainer. Um, but again, that's a different category. And so, no, I, I reject the accusation that you could just say the opposite of the verse um, and, and it be true. So, but in order for X to choose sin, instead of, 
sin Y instead of sin Z. Now notice that he's talking about two different sins because... See, now we're going to with possibilities as if anything other than what God determined could possibly happen, which again is a false assumption that most people start with. Because it's not just a nature to do sin, it's a nature to do a particular sin. Correct. So you could lie by saying this, or you could lie by saying that, but both of them are still sins. You could, you could murder somebody with a knife, or you could murder somebody with a gun. They're both still sins. But we're talking about the decree of God, not only deciding that you'll sin because of the nature that you're born with, but which sin you'll actually choose. It, it actually, God decrees the knife will be used rather than the gun on the sovereign and meticulous plan of Calvinist theology. Yeah, that's just like saying he's in control of everything, the means to the ends. It's like a restatement of the obvious fact. But again, Leighton, I would turn, so I'm, I'm saying yes, yes. Okay, this isn't a U2 fallacy. I've just said yes, there's no problem. All there is is you don't like it. But how do you not have that same fact? You believe that God created you and could have created you differently. So there's 101 million different ways that God could have created you. And therefore, there's 101 million different lives that you could have had. And therefore, there's 101 gazillion different sins that you could have been committing. And yet, whose ultimate choice was it for you to exist in the way and be created in the way that you were created. It was God. So how is God not, by choosing which of those 101 million different lives you'll get, determining which of the 101 gazillion different sins that you'll commit in those lives? He's obviously, in anybody's worldview, the ultimate decider of these things, isn't he? And so how you would consider it an argument to point at Calvinism and say, oh, God's not just determining that someone will sin, but precisely which sins they'll commit— Every Christian has that f truth that they have to deal with. Even in your view, God determined and chose to create you in a particular way. And he could have created you differently. So he was choosing which life you would get. In, in your view, of course, right? You're the view that has God seeing the future of possibilities that he's not determining. But my point still stands. You're making an objection that flies in your own face. And even if you want to abandon the 101 million different possible lives theory and say that the only life that you could have is, is this one life, that God was somehow forced to create you with this one life, you still have God being able to at any time stop or alter the course of time so that instead of somebody using a gun to murder somebody, they would use a knife. God is still, even in your view, perfectly able to affect and determine those two things, isn't he? So... I get worked up. The, the, the thing I can't stand the most is when people make arguments that are equally applicable to their own position and don't seem to realize it. That's what really gets me worked up. So in, in order for X to choose sin Y instead of sin Z, God has to make sure the desire for Y is strongest in X. You see. <laughs> so that X chooses according to God's desire. In other words, he has to make sure that Bob desires a knife to kill the person over the gun he doesn't have to make sure of it, right? He's not, he's not fighting against other powers out there to make sure that his power uh, comes to pass, right? This is, again, the illogical false assumption of the free will side. You're your own autonomous power, and so if God wants to control you, he has to come along and do something he wasn't doing before. He has to come along and start controlling you, right? He has to, quote-unquote, ensure that you do what he wants you to do, right? It's a false assumption. To kill the person in order to obtain the decree that he is determined will be. This he doesn't need to obtain his decree, right? It's not as though if God was not ensuring his decree that other things would be happening. The only reason things are happening is because God has a decree. I don't, you know, I, I'm repeating it because the article is repeating it. This contradicts scripture that clearly teaches that X's own desire for Y comes from himself, not from a divine decree, not from God. It does come from himself on the storyline level. And again, if you don't have God in the transcendent position and what is occurring on the storyline level, if you don't make that distinction, then no, this is what this is the problem when you bring God down to man's level. And you say, well, it's either God or me. And it somehow can't be both. When it says that God is working all things, that can't include my desires. That can't include my choices. I have to be the only one working those things on some sort of autonomous level. And you have to check out the episode titled, uh, Is Calvinism Inconsistent? that I did, where I went through and I showed how God in the transcendent position is the only way to make sense out of numerous biblical accounts. Not from anybody but himself, okay? 
Romans 7.15. And this idea, my desires come from me, from, from nobody else or nowhere else but me. But, but I've already shown how God is, has to be the sustainer of you and whatever mechanism of you, such as your will, that these desires are coming about. So God is the sustainer of whatever it is that makes your desires desires in the first place. But whatever it is, whether it's physical or spiritual, chemical or otherwise, God is sustaining it all while it's occurring. Right? The ultimate reason you have desires is because God's power causes those desires to exist and continue to exist. So you can't separate the power of God from these things, no matter, no matter if you're a Calvinist or not. 15 says, I do not understand my own actions, for I, do not want, for I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing I hate. How in the world does it make sense for someone to choose to do what they hate and be labeled, quote-unquote, their strongest desire? This is just unbiblical nonsense. And you, sh you should see the problem with that. Number one, he's quoting from Romans 7, uh, which, in my opinion, is so clearly uh, Paul struggling as a Christian, right? Christians struggle with sin, right? For, for, for reasons that are real and that matter. We struggle with sin in, in, in the sense of true struggle because we recognize that we're sinning against God and we have new hearts that is causing us to have this struggle, right? Fallen sinners, they might struggle, quote unquote, struggle with sin, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it for selfish reasons, right? So alcoholics might struggle because it's destroying their own lives or it's destroying the lives of their family members so on and so forth. They're not struggling with their sin for the right reasons. So Romans 7, in my opinion, when it says, as uh, Leighton quotes here, For I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing I hate. Again, can I hate going to work but still want to do it? It's not a contradiction, is it? Because there's, re there's different reasons behind the hating or not wanting to do something, and there's, there's reasons behind your wanting to do it. All we're recognizing is that your greatest desire is what you act upon. So as Christians, when we struggle, there are times when we fall back into sin. And can you possibly deny that, yes, we can say we hate our sin, and yet in that particular instance, in that particular circumstance, when we gave into a sin, in that circumstance, our greatest desire was to sin. We can still truthfully say that we hated it because there was other desires involved. We didn't want to sin because we didn't want to disappoint God, right? We didn't want to transgress against God. But in that particular circumstance, when we did give in, our greatest desire in that circumstance was to sin. So this is, again, in combination with last episode, this is in no way a refutation of people choosing according to their greatest desires to quote Paul in Romans 7. As such, because of these three, either taken individually or as a whole, compatibilism is just bad theology, it's bad philosophy, and bad biblical understanding, and should therefore be rejected by all Christians on pains that, one, it makes God the author of sin, two, it is... And we'll get to that. It is irrational. And three, it contradicts... It's irrational. Why? Most of this was emotion, right? But the only thing that could support the, the accusation of being irrational was that very bad attempt at making it circular. And again, it was not circular at all. So it's not irrational at all. Plain statements in scripture. What are your thoughts? Okay, so that, that's the article that I wanted to make sure you guys heard. All right, so that that's the end of that. Um... That eight-minute clip gave us a nice hour-long rounded-off episode. Just want you guys to notice uh, there was no actual demonstration or refutation of people choosing according to the greatest desire put forth in that article. There was no argument being, being made. Uh, there was an attempt to make it circular, which I exposed as merely asking a why question along with a how do you know question. And remember, guys, anytime there is a causal relationship between two things, right, anytime one of them happens you can know why it happened. And that's all that was being said there. So there was a bunch of extra little, you know, emotional objections and, you know, false assumptions about, well, if God determined, determines this or that, and, and we've encountered those all before. So I, I commented on those. But uh, with that said, um, not quite sure what I'm doing next. Again, my, my problem is not really a shortage of material or things to do. It's really just the time to do it. So when I can get around to it, um, one thing's a little interesting, Leighton just started going through the tulip and doing uh, responses to long lists of proof texts. So I found the one on total depravity rather interesting. I'd like to pick some of that one apart and make some responses. I will probably do that next, but can't make any promises. So you guys take it easy, and remember to stay consistent, my friends. Mm -hmm.